Welcome back to Following No One On, a Stormlight Podcast. This week is episode 78, and we are finishing part three of Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson. We have quite a bit to talk about this week. We have some deaths to talk about. Spoiler alert, if you haven't <laughs> read the chapters, please go do that. Trevor spoilers. We have some... Not a lot of groundbreaking information, but there is some. There's some, like, hidden in these action chapters, and you have to be looking for it, but there are some, and I'll be pointing them out if you guys didn't catch it. But, uh, Elliot, how are you? Um, I'm good. I, I, too, felt like there were, in classic Sanderson fashion, some nuggets hidden in amongst, like, the adrenaline rush. I'm, I'm very convinced at this point that he's doing this on purpose. He gets you all excited. He gets you, like, page-turning, page-turning, page-turning. And then he slides in these little, like, you know, secrets. Like, I'm going to tuck this in here because no one is going to notice. <laughs> it's uh, definitely intentional at this point. Absolutely. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great. You're right. Sanderson is very devious. Mm-hmm. Um, I am really excited to talk to y'all, so y'all can tell me all of the cool tidbits I missed. As I was, I was the page turner who was like, <laughs> "Okay, what's happening next?" Until the very end. So, really excited to talk about part three this week. Though we have we have another person on the mug, which we're we're gonna shut up. So we have a oh a surgeon. 98% sure I'm correct. We have a surgeon this week. Um, and that is Rocco. Everyone say hi to Rocco. Thank you, Rocco. Uh, you're on the mug this week. Um, it is a standard blue, no, sorry, green. I'm colorblind. Uh, thermos cup mug thing here. So congratulations, Rocco. Yes. We appreciate your support. Rocco is a, th- a surgeon, and we do appreciate you supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much. I'm Thank getting you. more accurate. I'm bringing my, <laughs> I'm bringing my recognition levels up here. All right, without You're two for seven now. Yeah, yes, uh, exactly. three for seven. He got uh, ranks <laughs> and Amy correct. So we're th- yes, we're, I did. We're in a three week win like win I know, streak. I'm at so. like thirty three ish percent or so. The reverse sweep here it a comes. A little above, yeah. All right. Without further ado, uh, two words to summarize this episode, Paul. This isn't a joke, but my two words, like, each word on its own has their meaning, but my words are big, sad. <laughs> okay. Elliot? I don't know why that's funny. It shouldn't be. So <laughs> my, my two words, in no particular order, are shock and fulcrum. Wow. <laughs> shock and fulcrum and big, sad. Okay, let's use these four words and finish part three of Oathbringer. All right, Paul, let you go first. All right, big sad, fellas. Okay, so... I'm not only am I big sad about Elicar's death, right? Well, that I'm going to talk about sad first. Sad is with the death of Elokar. I didn't think I would, if you, especially if you asked me like a book ago or maybe half a book ago, even like, would you be sad if Elokar died? I'd be like, no, like, who cares? 
I do not care. But it, it was sad to see Elicard die because it felt like he died right at the beginning of his redemption arc, of like his redemption arc coming into fruition. Right. So that was really sad, and there was there was just a lot of a lot of intense emotions throughout those episodes. So that was a part of it. Um, big is mostly for chapter eighty-seven, which is like in the audiobook, it's like three minutes long. It's super tiny, and it's in shades more, and we see our sprint, and they are very big. And I thought that was really cool. Um, <laughs> and so that was the main reason I chose it. Also, uh, that and just like the magnitude of our fight and stuff at the beginning, and it was really cool. So, big and sad. Cool. Elliot? I chose Shock and Fulcrum. Shock for the events that we see here. I think I was in a little bit of shock coming through the the end of these these chapters. If you're if you're one of our Patreon supporters and have access to our live reactions channels, you know that I I had to process a little bit of that live in in the live reactions channel because I was like, what did I just read? And but but also Kaladin. Kaladin goes into shock here in this chat. We'll, we'll talk about it later, but I was in shock that Kaladin was in shock that I did not see that coming from him. He's usually kind of the, when things get messy, he kicks into action and the opposite happened here, which was really interesting. And then Fulcrum, I picked Fulcrum and another shout out to our, our discord. We've been talking about this uh, a lot in our discord lately about the the symmetry of not just the events in like each individual book, but the events and the structure of the entire book series as a whole. Re- referring to the 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 first half of the the Stormlight Archives, the first five book series, this part three of Oathbringer is the middle. This is the fulcrum, if you will, of the the lever where it all meets and i'm still trying to process like just how important this is and and i I think we need to read the the back half to maybe fully appreciate like why this section is so important but i've been really focusing in on like how is the story going to change thematically and structurally like all kind of based around this fulcrum of the events that we just saw here in these these chapters so i've I've dove into that a little bit, but I know there's way more to unpack, so I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Yeah, the... Brandon Sanderson, in the opening of The Wave King's Prime, he has a forward to The Wave King's Prime, which is over on my bookshelf over there. He talks about how he worked as... He worked the graveyard shift at a hotel and when he, as a, at a reception desk, and when there was nobody walking into the hotel from, you know, midnight to 4 a.m. and he's got to sit there and do nothing, he would write. And everybody at the time, this was like right about the year 2000, um, everybody at the time, all the publishers that he was sending books out to were were telling him, stop world building, just get to the action. Stop world building, just get to the action. And he talks to himself about like, well, what do I want to do? Would I be okay with writing an action book if I never got pub or if would I be okay with writing 
a book that I wanted to write about like a really in-depth world, would I be okay with that if I never got published? And the answer he came to was, yes, that's what I want to write. So that's what I'm going to write. I don't care if I get published or not. So he claims, I don't know if this is true, but he claims he wrote 400,000 words about Roshar before he wrote a word of The Way of Kings. Let me say that again. The Way of Kings is less than 400,000 words altogether. He wrote 400,000 words about Roshar before he wrote a word of The Way of Kings. I'll, I'll just chime in and say if it was any other author, I wouldn't believe them. But that man Sanderson can churn out the words. Yes. My goodness. He can write. So I, I believe it. I believe it. So with this whole palindrome thing that we're really, we, we've hit the fulcrum of it, Elliot, that you're talking about. And the whole idea of a five books or five books and then another five books and then splitting that five into another half. So you're right, you're right at two and a half right now. And there's some very significant themes, very significant events that are taking place that he would have like thought about and wrote about long before he got the published stamp on the way of Kings in 2010. So that's where we are right now. And, and to shine a, a different light or think about it a different way, halfway through the first series of stormlight archives, guys, I, this seemed like a crazy far away time when we started this podcast a year and a half ago so man we've come a long way look at us we have come a long way i was thinking the same thing it, like heading out it it really has taught us especially since we've been pacing ourselves right not just reading as fast as we can it really has taught us you know journey before destination right i'll, I'll be uh i'll reference the 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 words there and uh it, it's been a while but it's really cool to see how far we've come uh, because we've come a long way, um, and I honestly didn't know what to expect when I got here, so almost here. I don't know where we are, but you know, yeah. Are we still following Noadon, by the way? That's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question. We haven't, we haven't heard from him in a while, but anyways, sorry. That's not a rabbit trail we should go down. Take a fish <laughs> to fry. All right, chapter 83. Let's start our assaults on on the palace. We just got out of some kind of pretty hectic chapters with Shalon and, and and Kaladin. Both of them went on their little side quests in the in the city. Kaladin joined the wall guard, figured out their secrets of they have a soulcaster. Shalon joined the revel, figured out their secrets of the unmade protecting the oath gate. Now they've got their information. They're attacking the palace. And this chapter opens up with Adolin sitting in his room and he's really nervous and like he's tired. He didn't sleep much last night because Shalon wasn't, wasn't home. He was worried about her. And Adolin's like wrestling with himself. Like, wait, why don't I feel good? I'm about to go into battle. I do this all the time. Like I, this is what I'm literally born to do. I can, I can fight a battle and he it dawns on him that he's not wearing his mother's necklace which he always uses before he goes into a duel he hasn't eaten his chicken 
and his other uh his other tradition is he talks to his sword so he summons the shard blade and starts talking to his sword and do you guys remember what he says to it i was just looking that up in the book because i didn't remember so (laughs) no if you have it in front of you you can read it but i can paraphrase if you don't have it Go for the paraphrase. He kind of rambles a little bit. I don't know that I need to read the whole thing. He does ramble. He's... It dawns on him that his sword was once alive. It, it was once a, a spren of a now dead, presumably, Knight's Radiant of old, and that bond had been split, and now there's a dead spren in front of him. And he kind of talks about, like, well... I'm sorry, I can't really do anything about that, but I've always tried to use you for good. And I'm going to keep doing that as long as you can, as long as you're okay with that. And the sword doesn't respond because it's dead. But uh, Adolin's always had this weird relationship with a sword, but now it's kind of in a weird perspective for us because we know his sword was once alive and he's got a lot of respect for his shard blade and rightfully so. I remember clearly back to some of the first times when we saw him do this and we even kind of wildly speculated like it wouldn't be all that crazy for the sword to start talking back to him I think is is some of the things we said back then you know not 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 realizing nearly close to what the reality might be that, that this is a an actual spren he's holding in his hand one that used to be bonded with a radiant and is now dead due to the breaking of that bond so yeah way different perspective now do we think that he's going to uh reignite that somehow i feel like that's totally possible i will come back to that in this episode i will come back to that okay cool yeah uh, make sure if you're watching or listening uh stay tuned in the episode where trevor says i'm right (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) i've been waiting for that for a long time so you'll have to keep waiting sorry (laughs) typical as adolin and azure and kaladin they're all and elokar don't want to leave him out (laughs) they're all marching on the palace and it dawns on adolin that you know, there was there was a one time where I was the strongest force on a battlefield. My shard blade and my dueling ability was the strongest force on a battlefield. But then Kaladin and his Adrain Scar take off into the sky above him. There's this huge colossal, like, giant troll stone thing that comes over the wall. And he just has, kind of muses to himself for a second, like, we're entering an era of gods, like, if I if I'd seen this a year ago, I'd have been like, what the you know, so that quote, that little moment was I had to pause and, and like agree with Adolin for a second there. It it feels like and Trevor, you warned us of this actually, that the the scope of what we're dealing with has just increased tenfold, a hundredfold from where we started, right? We used to be following Kaladin in, you know, on these bridge runs where they're just trying to survive to the next day, these parchment attacks where 
we weren't even sure if this world had magic. We weren't even sure like who the big players were, what's a herald. And here we are entering an era of gods. That just seems really well phrased because that's what it feels like. It is cool to see that like we've exponentially increased our our scope or magnitude of like events and things that happen, right? Like at first you're like, oh, did someone assassinate or try to assassinate Alucard? And now we're like the end times are upon us, by the way. Like I hope you're yeah. ready. And <laughs> like and it is crazy to me because right now I fully expect for that to keep growing. I don't know how. I mean, I could kind of guess how, but, like, not really. So, I assume we're going to keep growing, and we're, like, at the middle point of the series, like, the middle of the series. So, like, we've got a ways to go. Like, if we've grown this much in half of it, there's, there's, there's still a lot left. Like, Yeah. Yep. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm really intrigued and really curious. So, This is jumping around a little bit but i do want to talk about this real quick paul you said you referenced is somebody assassinating yellow car and there's that whole side story in the way of kings of the saddle girth and the you know is is sadius trying to assassinate him is somebody else trying to assassinate him and it ends up that he cut his own saddle girth but there was another part to the assassination attempt do you guys remember the second part that they never actually like figured out. Was it his, um, his shard plate was like tampered with? Yes. So the shard plate has gemstones imbued in it. Like they have to replace in order for it to draw stormlight from and heal itself. But some of his stormlight was drained. In reference to this next chapter, what happens right before he dies, why would his stormlight be drained? That's an interesting train of thought. Given what we know, I have thought back to that and still just kind of assumed that that there's any number of ways we've seen that people can drain stormlight out of things, so I assumed that was someone had done that intentionally but we're going to get to a moment here in a second where elokar speaks the oaths and starts to glow like he starts to use stormlight and we've seen with kaladin and shallan in their backstories and histories how they used surge binding i guess long before they realized what they were doing right so the the thread you're pulling on there leads to was Elokar surge binding unknowingly and he's the one that drained those you know that that energy out of his his armor that's a thought yep all the way back then it's definitely possible that Elokar was pulling stormlight in battles without even knowing about it that is i never thought about that my my only thought was like was Asadon around then hmm <laughs> Was she? Was she? Around? I don't remember, but like you know, maybe she was the 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 saboteur. It's possible. But maybe she was bad all the way back then. Somehow. 
All right, stop me if you want to talk about something, but we'll we'll salt the palace here, Kalin and Drei and Scar and Shalon fly over the the battle to straight to the oath gate and their their job is to clear the oath gate and everybody else goes through the palace over the sunwalk which is basically like a big bridge over to uh the the oath gate from the palace and there's this side stairway that what shalon went up for the revel um, but they decide they can't really assault that. It's only like a one, like a one person wide staircase. So like they don't want to assault that. They just want to go through the palace where they have a lot more room to maneuver. So that's the way they go. On their way, they see a head peek over the wall and start smashing towers. Anyone, anybody want to talk about that real quick? <laughs> I wrote in my notes thunderclast with a question mark. We've we've seen a couple references to those types of creatures before and had some like comparisons of them to the chasm fiends and things like that, but they've been described, I think, as like massive creatures of of stone that wreck stuff. So this seems fairly consistent. It does. I didn't actually remember that they were made of stone, but that is super crazy. I, I mean, in my head, I was assuming it was whatever we kind of saw previously in Delinor's Visions and, like, on yeah. the cover of the book, we talked about that. There's, like, a giant leg. True. And stuff. There is so, a giant leg on the back of the book. <laughs> we Things kind of just point to that, I guess. Like, that's that's my best guess. Whatever that thing is, if that's a thunderclast or if that's something different. We get a cool entrance scene to the palace after they run past this thunderclast. I I love this this action scene because I I don't know if it's it says this, but I always imagined three like big double doors at the front of the palace and each of the shard bearers takes one of the doors. Azure takes one of the doors, Elokar takes one of the doors, and Adolin takes one of the doors. And they kind of half circle, like assault these doors as they're cutting them open with shard blades. And then basically this huge fight breaks out between the palace guard and uh, the wall guard of of Azure. And they're trying to get through as fast as they can because the um, the Parshman, the Parshendi, whatever you, the singers, whatever you want to call them, the Voidbringers, have caught on to what's happening and they're trying to rush the palace. Like they're coming right in behind them. So they need to take the Oath Gate as fast as they can and swap uh, swap the Oath Gate to get to back to Urethiru and that all the, hopefully, all the, uh, the, the, the army at Urethiru is ready to fight to, to save Kolinar. Is there, uh, is there plan there? What'd you guys think of the assaulting the palace scene? It was pretty cool. It was very exciting. Yeah, felt very military coordinated breach of the the enemy encampment. It was yeah, very exciting. This is one of those moments that makes me really excited to 
hopefully one day see this in, in oh, a film yeah. adaptation. Uh, it's just super, super exciting and like really great descriptions. Um, but I mean, it's just a, a really good action sequence. So that was really cool. There was also, is this where we start to see some more characteristics of, of Azure here at the end of this chapter? Ellie, do you want to take this? I do. I, I'll i open up some questions for you guys. And Paul, I want to know what you think. And I want to know what Trevor thinks too, but he probably won't tell us. But the, the things might. I noticed... The things I noticed about Azure in this in this chapter were, were several. The first is her her turn of phrase again, and, and this is consistent with some of the recent chapters that we've read of her. She she says this phrase. I think it's even the title of the chapter, "Crimson to break," and and she's using it as like a military slang almost. But the use of a color, the use of a color, as some sort of a turn of phrase is again interesting for all the same reasons we we talked about before so there's that Adolin notices that she fights differently and he he focuses in on one thing that was a little confusing to me he's all like confused by the way that she uses her cloak and she like wraps it around her arm like as she's fighting he thinks of like shard plate or something like that while while he watches her do this i th- i feel like i need to see this visually like what she's doing here f- to to help this make sense but she's doing something odd that adolin notices and adolin as a warrior a dueler you know i it makes sense that he's going to notice her style's different or she's doing something important and then the last one her shard blade her shard blade behaves differently on the battlefield. It sounds like, the way I read it, it still is killing enemies like a normal shard blade would, where it's like passing through them, but they you know, drop to the floor dead. But they specifically note that it does not burn out the eyes of the victim like every single other blade, including things like, you know, Sill and the rest of that all do. Why is hers different? Are we also going to acknowledge that her name is a color? Like Azure is a is a color that's mm-hmm. and her cloak's color is Azure blue. Like it's not colon blue, it's a different like sky teal blue. She's got a theme for sure. So maybe she's team blue and crimson is red, right? And so whenever she says crimson to break, she's like, let's beat the red team. I'm the blue team, you know, like something along those lines. Maybe that's why she's saying it. She doesn't like red. Anyways, um, I don't, I, I, her shard blade just breaks every rule I could think of almost like just breaks one rule, right? It doesn't burn out the eyes or things like that. But that's such a big deal. Like, why Why well, wouldn't it? It's got to be something different. We know it's an honor blade, right? And so... Well, pause. Did. Pause there, because we had been assuming honor blade up to this point. I think I was. But 
fast forward to the final chapter that we're going to talk about, chapter 87. One thing leads to another. They end up in Shadesmar. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And there's our characters and their spren along with them. There's an unknown spren that's there that appears to be another like radiant spren. The only logical conclusion I can come to is that it's Azure's spren. In which case, this may not necessarily be an honor blade. This could be her spren as a blade. But we also know that she doesn't dismiss it, like ever. She like carries it with her, you know, in its holster and its scabbard or whatever on on her like a her normal hip. sword. How, how right archaic, so is, <laughs> right? Old school. Yeah. The so so is her spren just always a blade? Like these are all the questions I'm asking now. It's it's definitely different. It's weird. Maybe I don't know. Um, that is weird, and and that was the most notable thing to me. And honestly, probably my favorite moment. I got really excited whenever it showed that there was another spread in there, just because I like one thing I'm extremely curious about is seeing all the spread of the different mm-hmm. like orders, right? And so my mind is like, what is this one? Who who is this? Hello, uh, and it's vividly describes in this. One sounded really creepy. The eyes yeah. were like scratched out, like it, someone took a knife to a canvas, is how it is described. Yep. And I maybe thought I thought about taking geez. a knife to one of my canvases back there as a visual representation, but I uh, I didn't didn't quite go through with that. Yeah. Um. Maybe she got her eyes scratched out so that she don't, wouldn't take others. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Who knows? So anyway, lots of questions revolving around Azure at this point. Okay, the only thing I can think of, the only connection I'm going to try and make here is we've seen another Order of Night Radiant, at least one example of, that has a very different quirk to the system. Like, it doesn't seem to have any rules, and that's lift with eating to obtain Stormlight, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's just some quirk here with the eyes. Maybe it doesn't sever the soul like the others um, Shardblades do. Just something different like that. I don't know if there's something random and unique to individuals or orders or what, but that's the only... I'm throwing it into that category with Lift that it just doesn't fit in the rule and I don't understand why or what, so... Just a small tidbit of of 83 before we push on to 84. The palace guard didn't completely turn over with Asudon. When Asudon started commanding all of the um, palace guard to do all sorts of weird and questionable things, not all of them went with her, and some of them stayed loyal to Elokar and what they assumed would be the correct thing to do, and then they got imprisoned for it. So they find them, and they say, oh, we've been in there a couple days, and it's 
it's probably been like a month that they've been in there. So, and they're all seemingly fine. Like, I mean, they're not like totally fine, but they're all health, like healthy ish. They want to fight. So I want to pause on that for another half second. Did you guys notice the food in the next chapter? How some things, and at the revel too, how some things are oddly preserved in like, yeah, some things have been rotted, some things are not, some things that should have been are rotted, some of them are not. I always, in my head, applied the same thing of these, uh, these soldiers that are being neglected in the palace as along with the food that's being neglected in the palace are oddly preserved. Like somehow, like they only think a couple of days have passed when in reality, like a month has passed. I'm reading this as like some weird, like time dilation, like time. We know a month has gone by, but clearly it it hasn't been a month for these soldiers that are there cuz like you said they only think it's been a few days and they also physically look like it's only been a few days so somehow time has passed differently for them and that would explain all the food or at least some of the food is no the food actually only has been sitting there on the table for a day or two even though it has been a month so there's a very strange effect going on here And and I keyed in on what I think is a, is actually a very important fact here. The fact that some guards resisted this spren is actually very important in my mind. Yep, I agree. It, this this is not just a pure mind control. This is not all the guards are instantly taken over. They have no power or control over this. There is some sort of choice might be stretching it a little too far but do you go along with the suggestions of these unmade spren or do you resist what they're telling you to do and that definitely that definitely changes how i view this whole situation with all these guards and the conflict that we're we're watching I I'm really glad you keyed into that because there's there's a key difference between just mindless control over anybody who is unfortunate enough to be in the palace and right. a select few who could resist it and you know yeah and it's like yes this spread has a very strong influence yes we're talking about massively huge temptations you know we saw shallan and her you know just kind of completely overtook her mind almost but at the same time these are guards who have given into this voice not necessarily just completely innocent bystanders who were taken over so yeah Any more in 83? That was what I had. Okay. 84, we're going to run up to a Sudan in the 
kings or in the royal chamber. But before we get there, I want to read the epigraph for 84. Okay. I don't know if you guys keyed in on this, but I just want to read it real quick. And it really has nothing to do with what's happening in proper epigraph fashion, what's happening like on screen. However, it's really interesting. The enemy makes another push toward Feverstone Keep. I wish we knew what it was that had them so interested in that area. Could they be intent on capturing Rall Elarim? Now think about the context of this epigraph. What are our epigraphs coming from? Do we? Do you guys remember? Are they still coming from the drawers? They are. They're coming from the yeah. gemstones in Urethiru. This is the, the very last recordings of the Knights Radiant before they close the doors of Urethiru. And where's Feverstone Keep? It's a trick question. We don't know. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't know this one, Trevor. No, it's the, well. it's the location. I'm just looking for the answer. of It's the location of Dalinar's vision of the, um, the Recreants. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Where the Knights Radiant end up surrendering their shards presumably like right after this is this uh this epigraph is written so somebody is writing why why is the enemy interested in feverstone keep and Rall el arim and then the knights radiant who are fighting there surrender their shards to to the people at feverstone keep elliot you look like you want to talk about this so go ahead you you can just see the the gleam in my eyes of eagerness if I want to talk I to can. It. I I want to talk to it because I have my handy dandy map next to me right here in my my little recording setup and as soon as I read this I whipped that out and I was like okay this this is it we've been wondering for a long time now where Feverstone Keep is it 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 didn't seem necessarily super important but I still really wanted to know I wanted to kind of put this into context we know this really really important event happened at feverstone keep where in roshar is that now we know or at least we have a vicinity if it's in the vicinity of raw elarim that means it's in the very northwest corner of roshar i had to hunt for a little bit but i found raw elarim all the way at the very top of roshar so and it's that's in the realm of of eerie so Beaverstone Keep seems like it should be up there. Now, I'm a little bit confused, though, because we've been told Feverstone Keep is, like, snowy and, and has, cold. like, icicles yep. that go sideways and things like that. I thought Erie was, like, the tropics. It is. That it was, like, the the jungles of Roshar. We know that Roshar, that the continent is in the southern hemisphere of whatever planet it's on. So the, the, the southern bits are the cold ones, like the Frostlands and Thalina. And the northern parts are the like the temperate and warm equatorial regions. So that doesn't seem to line up, but this does seem to be a hint to tell us at least a region of Roshar to look in for Feverstone Keep. I don't know if that's going to be like really important later, but I'm writing it down. So we've seen Feverstone Keep in Visions, right? Yes. Like seen it? 
all these visions were definitely like back in the like the day of recreants or things like that right they my guess is like so the the what's the word the high storms and all our storms kind of set the the weather just about for the region don't they my guess is maybe back then maybe it was different like the 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 cycle was different maybe it came from a different way the air was totally different whatever the world is kind of like sort of flipped or maybe everything was frozen or like whatever so that makes sense I, I, I'm not too worried about that I guess but um cause we've seen like now our everstorms are going the other way and stuff so I'm sure lots of craziness can happen there I, I'd be willing to buy that as well I'm also looking at the map little closely and, and it does show mountains in in the region of Erie there so it could also be a scenario like I'm thinking of like Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa where you have a very warm jungly type area but you also have a really tall mountain that gets a lot of snow on the top of it so I, I think that's possible too good stuff <laughs>